These last few weeks we've been taking various terms that occur from time to time in the Christian life and we've been trying to define them, sometimes well and sometimes poorly perhaps, but we have been taking words that are commonly used and trying to spin them out a bit, deconstruct them for you so you can understand what they mean and we've looked at things like grace and love and sacrifice and today we're looking at a word that doesn't appear in this text but it's a concept that appears in this text and throughout the Bible called sanctification and I could sing you the catechism definition of sanctification in a Hispanic accent but I'm not going to do that because I've done things like that before and I think I promised I wouldn't anymore. But I think it's an important concept for us to reckon with because it has to do with God's goals for us. And God's goals are quite important for us to interact with because, you see, His plans endure forever, we're told. So the sort of things that He's up to in the world, they wind up coming true. And so if we're up to things that He's not up to, then we're going to be perennially frustrated. There's a need for us to sort of corroborate with him to conform our plans to his plans. And it helps make sense of the world in a better way. And so I'm hoping today as we look at this very famous passage, this passage that in some ways produces a nauseous uh, reflex in some of you because it's been misused on you. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. These are words that people have inflicted on you when the lights went out. When you were stuck in the deepest darkness and you were struggling with nausea and they give it to you like a strong antibiotic and as soon as you took it, you vomited it back up because you couldn't receive it just then. This this is not the kind of thing that you can say to somebody right in the middle of their travail, and it be well received. This is the kind of stuff that people put on plaques, and it gets kind of hackneyed. It's hard for us when it looks like God's vacant, absented himself from us, to actually latch on to something like this. But it is the kind of thing that you can carry around in your own knapsack or your purse, as it were, or your toolbox. Because you're going to interact with lots of disorienting things. You are right now, some of you. You're going to come up with all sorts of confusing things, things that you don't want to be happening, waitings that you don't want to have to be engaged in, deprivations that you would not have chosen. And so it's good to have a way to speak to yourself to instruct yourself, to reorient yourself to what's true and right and good. And when you look at this, you realize on the tail end of Paul talking about what a groaning existence this is as we wait for what seems like it may not come true but is going to come true. We're going to be resurrected and God's going to make everything new. And he says, and we know that in all things God's work for the good of those who love him and been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, God has this master intention 
this goal, that you would be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, he wants to make you like Jesus. Okay, so you've heard that in Sunday school, but I need a reminder of that. I need a reminder of what God's up to in the world because life gets busy sometimes and it gets frenetic and harried and I'm in the middle of child rearing like many of you are. I'm in the middle of a lot of relationships where some of which are flourishing and some are being decimated. I'm in the midst of a lot of sorrow and it's easy to forget why am I doing what I'm doing? What is it that I'm up to? What? Why am I trying at this? Why should I do this? Why should I not do this? And I get confused as to what God's up to, so I need to be reminded, and I'm preaching this sermon more for myself than you, so sorry. I need to be reminded what God's up to in the world and what God's up to in my life, whether I can see it or not. And the thing that this passage tells me, really this whole scripture's echo in a chorus, is that God is interested in image rehabilitation. God is interested in making me and making you more like Jesus. That's his main gig, really. It leads C.S. Lewis to say in one place, I doubt that the church exists for any other reason than to make little Christs. With all its clergy and all its cathedrals and all its missions and Bible studies, if it's failing in that regard to make little Christ, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. He says, it's doubtful that Jesus was sent into the world for any other reason. In fact, it may be that God created the universe for no other reason than to populate it with little Christs. That might be a hyperbolic statement, you think, but then you go back to the beginning of the Bible, to the prehistoric era where God's Speaking and dandelions appear, speaking and dinosaurs appear, speaking and men and women appear. And he says, let us make man in our image. You know what's interesting about that? Just a little bit of history, and I know it's hot, and I'm sorry to bore you. But if you had been an Israelite being addressed by Moses in these days, and you had sort of arrived at a self-definition in the land of Egypt where you were a slave. You were worth nothing. There was one son of God on the earth, and it was the Pharaoh. He was the image of God. You were a peon. You were expendable. You did not matter. And so Moses is trying to help these people as they're about to go into the promised land understand who they are, what they're for. And he tells them, you know what? The Egyptians have it wrong. You people are God's image. See, in the ancient world, what would happen before there was CNN to let you know about things or Fox News or any such media outlet, if you were a great king, a powerful ruler, and you wanted to let people know who was in charge in the land where you were dwelling, where you were trespassing, or you were walking through, you would put up a statue of yourself, an image of yourself. Pharaoh Youngblood rules here, it would say, and people would quiver. 
you would be walking through the land and you'd see a statue and it would tell you who's in charge here. And what God was saying that was so revolutionary when he said, let us make man in our image, he was saying to these Israelites and therefore to us as we eavesdrop. My intention for creation was this, that I would place my royal image. I'm the king over the entire world. There is no part of it. There's no back alley. There's no highway. There's no high rise. There's no neighborhood. There's no creek over which I'm not king. And I have placed my royal image all over the world. And I want this to happen. When people run up against a girl or a boy, a man or a woman, I want them to say, Oh, Yahweh, the king rules here. When they see how these people act, when they see the the righteous ways they deal with each other, the integrity, the cheerful sacrifice they give to each other, the preference of one another for themselves, the, the ways they operate in upright ways, when people see that, they'd say, Aha! The king of heaven and earth rules here. We're in his territory. But of course, you know that Adam and Eve, our first parents, being made in the image of God, they... They didn't want to represent merely the king. They wanted to be the king. They wanted to be the boss of themselves. And so they chose badly and then blew the universe to bits. Work became difficult. Sin was introduced. This allergy was introduced to God in all Adam and Eve's progeny. Childbirth became in need of an epidural. God said, everything gets shattered when my image isn't imaging me anymore. And so the whole rest of the Bible really is a story about God setting up these people to be his special representatives, his image on the planet. And so he picks the Israelites and he says, you're going to be my holy people, my prized possession, my treasured people on the earth. You'll represent me as a kingdom of priests if you'll follow my laws, he says. He tells them, you're going to be holy. Be holy like I'm holy. And now, see, sanctification is just, if we had an English word for it, it would mean to holify you, to make you holy. Now, most of us use holy in a pejorative term. I'm people down there, Bible thumpers. They're holy rollers. We don't even have an idea for holiness that's good might make some of you sick to your stomach to think about. It certainly doesn't sound any fun. But if you think about this, what God was saying to his people is, look, I'm taking you, I'm picking you, I'm selecting you. There's nothing not commendable about you. You you smell nasty, but I want you anyway. And I'm going to make something of you. So that when people see you, they'll know something about me. They'll get a taste for what, what, what a community that represents me is like, and how this was the intent. So you are earmarked people. You know, holy things, a a holy thing in the tabernacle, a holy pot, unlike what you might think are holy water. You know, Paul and Jan on TBN will sell you some holy water. Don't buy it. Holy water, holy implements, candelabras, There are things that have been set apart for God. A holy pot is just a normal pot. 
that's been set apart to be used exclusively for worship to God. And so what God's saying is throughout the scriptures, he picks these people and he says, you're holy people. That means I've, I've picked you out and I've earmarked you for service to me in the world. What I would like to have happen is that people would see you out in the world and they would say, oh, God rules here. This is what it's like when God is ruling at an elementary school. Oh, this is what it's like when God's ruling on a baseball field. This is what it's like when God's ruling at a construction site. This is what it's like when God's ruling in a rebuilding effort in a bank, an insurance company, at a law office. This is what it's like when God is here. These are my designated people who are showing the world what it's like to give them a taste of the goodness of the thing. Well, Jesus comes along and we're told that Jesus is the, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God's being. He's the radiance of God's glory. No one's ever seen God, says John, but we have beheld him. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Jesus is the picture of God. He is the true image. And now, Paul says, here's how you can understand yourself. God wants you, he's been dreaming of this since before you came around, to be like his son. He doesn't want his son to be an only child. He wants him to be firstborn among many brothers. If you had the TNIV, I bet it says, and sisters. He wants all of us to be made in the image of Jesus. Set apart. This is why in all the letters that Paul writes, he refers to the saints. Saints are holy ones. Saints are designated, set apart people that God has picked out and said, you, I want you. You're going to be made like my son. Okay, so God has this goal for you. It's to rehabilitate his image. It's to take this tarnished thing that Adam and Eve messed up and that we reflect so badly and to take up residence in us and to begin to make us like his son so that we can reflect to the world what it's like to really be a human. What it's like when God sets up shop in a place. God has a goal to make us like his son. I've said that 600 times. I hope you believe it now. God has a goal to make us like his son. Now, here's why I'm saying this. Because I'm assuming you have heard this before and you know it. God has this goal for what he intends you to grow into. Well, you need to, you need to internalize it. It can help you start to rethink what's happening in your life. Because here's the thing, is everybody in here has goals. Everybody in here has things you're shooting for presently. Things you're aspiring toward. If you're raising children, you have aspirations for these children. If you're running a business, you have aspirations for that business. You might have physical goals, relational goals, financial goals. But, If your goals do not coincide with this goal of God who has been predestining things, determining what he wanted 
everything to turn out like, from before there was anything to turn out, then you're going to be constantly frustrated. But if you start to believe that God has this intention to make you like his son, to make you like Jesus, then it'll start to give you an interpretive grid to reinterpret your experience as bad things are happening to you. See, here's what I mean. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and I think he says it best. He says everything best, and that's why I quote him a lot. He says, when I was a child, when I would get a toothache, I would never tell my mom about it until it got unbearable. Now, the reason for this is because I knew, yes, if I go to my mom with the toothache, she's going to give me an aspirin or some, whatever they used in the early 30s or whenever he was a kid. But I knew something else was going to happen. She was going to call the dang dentist. This was the thing I was trying to avoid because I knew all about the dentist. If you give them an inch, they take a mile. What would happen is she would take me to the dentist with my toothache, and that dentist would start fiddling around with all my other teeth and teeth that were perfectly fine and not hurting at all. He'd make all of them start hurting. And so I was trying to avoid that situation altogether. So I would just keep it to myself if I had a toothache. Well, he says, I think in a lot of ways we come to Jesus like that. We come to God like that. We have some embarrassing feature in our lives, something that's gone haywire. Maybe it's emotional health. You're depressed or you're filled up with fears and anxieties, and this is the the avenue through which you come to Jesus. Please fix me. Please set me free. Make me well. Maybe you've got some embarrassing addiction to pornography. Maybe your children are very rebellious and they're embarrassing you and your life has fallen apart, your marriage has fallen apart. Whatever it is, you drink too much, you, got, you have a volatile temper. You've got some embarrassing thing about yourself and you, like I, we make these mistakes in thinking, you know what, I'm like a one sin dude. If I could just stop overeating, I'd pretty much be a righteous guy. And Jesus, in his kind way, says, you're an idiot. You think overeating is your main sin? That's like, that's like 472 second. 472nd on the list, man. Of a 4 million item list. You got a lot of them, man. You don't have any idea how messed up you are. And so, but we come to Jesus and we say, will you please fix this about me? And you know what? Jesus often does. But you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. Because he doesn't just stop there because he doesn't think you're a one sin person. He doesn't think that you're, whatever you think that one defect is, oh, if I could just get my husband to love me, my life would be great. Oh, if I could just get my kids into college and them not hurt anybody or themselves and them not do drugs, I'll be great. If I could just get out of debt, I'll be great. If I could just stop a cussing. I'd be great. And so you come to Jesus and he has so much bigger intention for you. And so it's kind of like your little house. And Jesus comes in there and he starts changing some plumbing fixtures and he puts some new paint on the wall and you say, thank you, that's enough. Got it just like I want it now. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus, with a sledgehammer, 
starts taking down a wall. And you're like, what are you doing? That's a perfectly good wall. I like that bathroom there. I need that roof. And you start to protest. What are you up to in my life? I like this little cottage that I have dreamed up for myself. I want this postage stamp little yard with a picket fence. I want my life like this. I like my life like this. Please leave me alone now. And Jesus, this loving and very strong and quite wise contractor, says, um, Huh? We're not, we're not building a little cottage here. A cottage isn't in the plans. In fact, we're demolishing most of the cottage because I have something for... I, I'm not, we're not talking about builder grade here. I've got a custom thing I'm trying to build here. I'm building a mansion. I'm building something exquisite. Something that people look at and go, wow. I'm building something that's got my fingerprints all over it. I'm, I'm up to something that's far bigger than you imagined. And a lot of us, a lot of times, want to say, I, I, no, please don't. This is a lot of trouble. Because, see, your dreams for your life sometimes are that you might not be bothered. Or that you would just be able to have enough money to kind of do your thing and play some golf and watch some TV and go for long walks. And God says, my aspirations for you are far more elaborate than your aspirations. I'm trying to heal a world here, man. And you're part of it. I want to make you like my image. So you can start to think, this is where that Romans 8, 28, that God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. See, if he's pre-selected you, if from the beginning of time, before he ever did a thing, before he ever breathed a breath, before he ever started losing hair and gaining weight, God said, you know what? I want you. You're not that impressive, but I'm going to make something impressive of you. I want you, and I'm going to never stop wanting you, and I'm going to start this process in you, and I'm never, ever going to finish it because you are going to be like my son. Then you know you're pre-loved and you're desired, and God wants you, and he's up to something in your life, and so when everything's falling apart, you can say, instead, hey, God abandoned, God has abandoned me. You start to say, man, God's up to something in me. He's remodeling me. And it's just that his plan is bigger than my plan. His plan is different than my plan. My plan involves no pain. Isn't that what most of your plans involve? My plan doesn't involve sacrifice. But listen to Jesus who we're being made like. Now, everybody, you know, he's magnificent. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Everything is subject to him, even though it's not presently seen by us what's subject to him. When he's on his earthly trek, God in skin on the earth, he was a homeless dude. And his life, his career could be summarized in ways like this. During the days of Jesus' life, he offered loud cries and t- 
tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And you start to think about that. That's the description, you know, an epitaph of Jesus. If you're walking through a graveyard, he's not in it anymore, but if he had a stone there, it might say, man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs. You're like, dang it. That doesn't sound that good. Man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs. He learned suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And you think if God, when he puts on skin and he comes and lives our life, the life we should have lived, to show us what it's like to be a human, if he had to learn obedience through what he suffered, how are you going to learn it? Uh, Boy, they. Well, sorry, but that's the deal. But you know how helpful that is when you start to suffer? Because it's not like... Any of you are going to avoid it. You're either suffering right now or you're about to be. Sorry. That's not my fault. But that's how life pans out. But if God's working all of it for good, then you have a way to interpret it while it's happening. Oh, yes, God's making me like his son. This means he's not done with me yet. This means he's not finished. This means he's not abandoned the project because I don't have enough to pay him. Because I'm not a very cooperative client. He's sticking with me. And he's going to keep at it. And it gives you a way when you start, for instance, to be treated unjustly. Horrible injustice happens to you. And you start to say, wait a second. Jesus, I'm being made in his image. Was he ever treated unjustly? Uh, I don't know. Yes. Yes. His trial. The culmination that ended in his death was the most gross miscarriage of justice the world has ever seen. The only perfectly righteous man that ever lived on the face of the earth was treated more unjustly than anybody's ever been treated ever. Okay. So, yeah, so I might be too if I'm linked up to him. But surely following Jesus and being made in his image wouldn't mean that that my husband wouldn't love me very well. But then you... Think, Jesus, was he loved very well? And then think about being on a cross and saying, forgive me to people that you love, that you're dying for, and they're mocking you. They're saying terrible things about you. They're maligning your character. And you think, ooh, maybe I'm not going to be loved by my husband very well sometimes, or all the time, or ever. Uh, Do you get the idea? All over your life, there are things that aren't panning out the way you want them to. And if you start to believe that God is actually up to something in your life because he's trying to make you like Jesus, then then at least can get you through. It's at least something that reminds you he's actually not left. Jesus is in glory now, but suffering, as he shows us, as he pioneered for us, is the path to glory. That's how people are made holy. That's how they're made like Jesus. It's rigorous. It's sometimes painful. Teresa of Avila is reported to have said, this nun, this mystic nun, as she was going on a journey, riding on a horse, and she got knocked off her horse and landed face first in the mud. Jesus, if this is how you treat your friends, 
It's no wonder you have so few of them. Some of you have felt that way before. But when you listen to the apostle here, reminding you that this love that Jesus has for you, it's inseparable from you. It's not going to stop on you. His dream for you is bigger than your dream for yourself, and it's more comprehensive, and it's more complex, and it's more lasting, and it's what is good. You realize, don't you, that nobody looks at Jesus' life and says, man, that guy was a jerk. Everybody, no matter what they think about Jesus, they at least think his life was beautiful. They think this is someone worthy of emulation because he's the first time anybody's ever seen what a true image of God's supposed to look like. And God's saying, I'm going to make all of you like that. And it's going to be a long process, maddening sometimes, frustrating sometimes. And what you've got to reckon with is this. Do I trust him? Do I really believe that he's up to this that he says he's up to? Just like you, as a parent, maybe you've had to take your small baby and get them immunized, get them shots, and you're holding down this child that doesn't want to be held down, and they're looking at you in a mystified way. Why are you letting this person stick a needle in your baby? They can't talk. They're just screaming. And they're bewildered, and you can't explain it to them. And as they get older, you ask them to obey you, and they think you're trying to deprive them. Paul Tripp in one place says, I have to look at my children sometimes and say, listen to me. Do you believe that your daddy is not wicked? That your daddy is not a bad man? That your daddy's will for you is good? You've got to listen to me. I know you don't understand what I'm asking you to do, but your daddy's will for you is good. Your mommy's will for you is good. And the apostle is reminding you right here, as you groan, as you wait for God to make true what's been promised, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to think, I don't know if he's good. And he's reminding you that he's up to something like making you into his son that you hadn't thought about, that you're not always thinking about. And he's good. And he's saying, you've got to trust me through this. Well, I'm going to close with this story, I think, that illustrates it well. My friends, if they knew I was reading from an iPhone, precious, during a sermon, they would shoot me because of the astonishment. They would be, they would be flabbergasted. Anti-technology me is now addicted to this stupid device. It's so much easier than writing it down. But listen to this, that in the Narnian tale, the horse and his boy, Shasta's this boy who's had a hard life. Everything about it's gone wrong. And he's riding on this horse in the darkness through a dark and foggy forest. And he's just begun to feel really sorry for himself. And he's eaten up with loneliness and disappointment And as he is starting to sort of contemplate how woeful his life is, he feels this presence walking alongside him. And he's not a little freaked out. And so he says to this presence that he can feel but cannot see, who are you? Scarcely and above a whisper. And the voice, the thing, says, one who has waited long for you to speak. 
Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, are, you, a, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. But I can't see you at all, says Shasta, after staring very hard. And then this terrible thought entered into his head, and he said, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, oh, please, do go away, he says. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the unluckiest boy in all the earth, he says. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and his face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or his mother. They had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape from that dreadful place and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in another country and about his night among the tombs and how beasts howled at him out of the desert. He told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his companion Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had eaten anything. You know the feeling, right? After he gives this litany of his sorrows, the large voice says, I do not call you unfortunate. And Shasta says this great line, Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? It's a very legitimate question as a boy. If you have a habit of running into lions that chase you, you think maybe... Fortune's not on my side. And the voice answers back, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean, said Shasta? I've just told you there were at least two the first night. And there was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. There was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. How do you know I was the lion? And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I am the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion, though you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. I was the lion. There was only one lion who's been showing up all over the place in your life. You've been misunderstanding every single time, but it hasn't derailed the lion's intention of staying after you, of getting you to where he wants you to be. God has a goal for you. This Lion of Judah that says, I want you to be like my son. And when I start, I finish. And what I make is very good. The question for us is, will we collaborate? Will we adopt that purpose? It's his main purpose to conform us to the likeness of His Son.
This one lion who is swift of foot. He's all over your life right now. If only you'll notice. Amen.